my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about famed mainland Chinese director Zhang Yimou. And uh, Will said that because I know I was going to screw up the pronunciation of his name because I look at it and I want to say Zhang, and I know that's not what it is. I mean, look, am I pronouncing it right? Possibly not. Mm, yeah. Zhang Yimou. Yeah. I got to think like Zhang. Zhang. Zhang Yimou is like without a doubt the most famous mainland Chinese film director. Is yeah. that too much of an overstatement? Absolutely. No contest. This is the director that his movies have been able to kind of get an art house attention and more of his movies than any mainland Chinese director. I mean, Raise the Red Lantern and Hero alone mm-hmm. are two of the most famous Chinese films, and also two films that I think embody uh, what interested us in him as a subject, what interests many people in him, because he seems to be a guy, if you know anything about him, it's that he emerged in the 1980s with a series of movies that were consistently banned in mainland China. Every single one of them. But one of the reasons that he does have international attention is they played international film festivals. Yes. And I think there was some mystique there as well that like the people watching them, they're great films, but they're also they can't play in his home country. And he kept making films during this period of both like China opening up to the world, but also China presenting this image of being kind of like this scary foreign empire that suppresses its own artists, Mm -hmm. you know. But then, also, in 2002, he makes a movie called Hero with Jet Li, which I'm sure many of you listening have seen, that is kind of the cinematic embodiment of the new China. And it's also a reaction to Crashing Tiger, Hidden Dragon. (laughs) Totally. And it's a movie that embodies, well, um, we'll we'll get into it, but to put it shortly, Zhang Yimou became, in addition to that, he directed the opening ceremonies of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And the 2022 Olympics as well. So in the international imagination, he has this strange kind of dual reputation as a guy who started as and I think it would be inaccurate to call him this, but nevertheless, his reputation was as a sort of dissident or as a sort of like guy who was constantly running up against the Chinese censors, telling the truth about the country, and then later became this guy who like was, you know, the lick spittle to power in some way, you know? And I don't think either of those is entirely true or entirely fair, but... Well, it just boils down to that if you become the most famous mainland Chinese film director, then China's going to make him do propaganda films, period. Like, that's what's going to happen. And he's made certain decisions across his career. Like, I think he was very frustrated early in his career of uh, working in the system and constantly losing. Mm -hmm. And then at some point in the middle of his career, he said, I am going to work the system and start winning. And that's what he's done ever since. And I think for a lot of people, certainly for me, when I first discovered him, I had a little trouble with that. I had a little trouble understanding him. Were you like, how dare he sell out? Well, maybe a little bit, but I'm older like, and wiser. When did you discover him? Was it? It was Hero, I think. Okay. When Hero came out in 2004 and in America, I saw House of Flying Daggers, which came out the same year. And uh, House of Flying Daggers yeah. got a pretty big push, too. That's right. And then I, I also, at that point, checked out some of his earlier ones. Like, I remember watching Raise the Red Lantern on a really bad DVD mm. that was released. Well, he was one of those filmmakers that was like, how are we supposed to see his films? Like, well, you got to get the Hong Kong VCD mm-hmm. that, like, uh, bad audio, bad picture, but at least you can watch the film, right? That's how I saw most of his early ones. Like, 
at my local library in the Chinese film section, they had a ton of his movies all on bad looking DVDs. That's how I saw Judo. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's how I saw Story of Q Jew. All sorry, I'm embarrassing myself. All these names I don't know how to pronounce. But anyway, a little bit about Zhang Yimou's life and career that will hopefully give some context because few filmmakers have lived as interesting a life. Um, Why, he's a Nepo baby, right? <laughs> I think you're thinking of Chen Cage. Oh, I didn't know uh, Chen Cage was a Nepo baby. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's so funny to call these guys Nepo babies. That, like, literally were sent during the Cultural Revolution to, like, work on farms. What you need to know about Zhang Yimou is he's probably the most famous of a group of filmmakers termed the fifth generation of mm. Chinese directors. And he, his father was, like, a dermatologist, but... During the uh, Cultural Revolution, he was pushed into uh, working at uh, farms, not labor camps, farms in the country. Well, to give a little background on Chinese film history, see the first generation, that was early filmmakers in Shanghai. The second generation, this was a golden age, you know, the 30s, the 40s. The, the... I looked at a our local uh, bookstore and they have like two gigantic volumes of like Chinese films, like a dictionary. And you can just flip through all these like mainland Chinese films. And I know I will not recognize Uh, 98% of them. The third generation were the quote-unquote revolutionary film workers. They made early socialist realism in the 1950s. And then the fourth generation, which was this generation that was kind of cut off, these were the filmmakers who trained, were taught in the early 1960s, but the Cultural Revolution came and prevented them from making films. Chen Cage's father, Chen Cage is the other most famous of the fifth generation. He was one of those filmmakers, and Chen Cage, you know, as a teenager, joined Mao's Mao's Revolutionary Army and denounced his father, and his father, you know, went off to work at a labor camp somewhere. And Chen Cage has worked through the trauma of that ever since. And if you are not aware of the Cultural Revolution, we're not going to do a big history lesson here, but basically it was Mao's uh, answer to, oh boy, I feel to, I don't, I don't feel like I have a firm grip on power anymore. Can we uh, condemn all intellectuals or anyone in power? Well, uh, use the use to do so. Yes. Um, I mean, the, yeah, it was this great purge of the so- proletariat coming together, rising up against, against so-called rightists. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not a history teacher. I but, mean, I'm a tanky, so, you know, <laughs> nothing wrong happened here. I mean, I, I think pretty much anyone would say that it was a great big disaster for the whole country. Yes. Uh, so anyway, the fifth generation consisted of these, you know, 150 or so filmmakers who were in the first class of the Beijing Film Academy after it reopened in 1978. And the, the legend goes that uh, Zhang Yimou had to, you know, really push because he was like in his late 20s and that he didn't actually have any experience that would lead him to uh, be let into this Beijing Film Academy. And but thanks to the photography that he had done through a camera that he had bought donating his blood, he was able to be let into the school. Well, Zhang Yimou's father, Zhang Yimou was born in 1950, and his father was a member of the uh, Chiang Kai-shek Kuomintang Army, which in the Chinese Civil War was the the losing side. Mm -hmm. And several of his relatives migrated to Taiwan after Mao's Communist Party took over. And so for his whole upbringing, for his whole childhood, Zhang and his family were um, of, of a lower social class. Mm-hmm. They were they were excluded from from much. 
I read this week, for example, that Zhang was barred from becoming a member of the Youth League, which was a requirement, a prerequisite to joining the Communist Party. And after high school, during the Cultural Revolution, he spent several years, you know, working as a peasant in in the fields, uh, working at a textile factory, you know, so he and all these fifth generation filmmakers really experienced the trauma of the Cultural Revolution firsthand. Forcefully, because uh, all the kids are like, let's get him out of here and put him in the farms. But growing up, he became very fast fascinated with film. The only films that could be screened in China in the 60s and 70s were, you know, Chinese propaganda films, but he loved those too. Mm-hmm. You know, became interested in those. I mean, there's power in those films. If you see them, like, for example, one of the big ones is, uh, oh, it doesn't go undertaking of Tiger Mountain. It has a similar title, but it's like one of the opera films. Because wasn't there, boy, we're getting into the weeds here, but there was a certain amount of kind of like entertainment that was allowed. And like Taking of Tiger Mountain was one of those. Right. So I have that book on my shelf. The uh, Chinese government uh, did English translations of Tiger Mountain. It is insanely violent. Wouldn't, <laughs> like, it be, wouldn't it be fun to do an episode on some of those movies? Like a Chinese propaganda episode movie? Yeah, it's like, we could do some old ones, we could do some new ones. I mean, everyone knows Zhang Yimou, but yeah. who's seen those movies? I mean, wow. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. We gotta do that in the future. So anyway, in 1974, when he was just 24 years old, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, he's in Shanghai. As you alluded to, after Mao's death in 1976, there was a great opening up. The Beijing Film Academy opened up, and he applied to be in it, didn't get in at first, even though he passed the exam because he was too old. But after an appeal, he made it in. And he studied for four years to be a cinematographer. Part of that class that include, included Chen Cage yep. and all those filmmakers. And all those filmmakers collaborated on films afterwards. Zhang Yimou shot uh, Chen Cage's first film, Yellow Earth. Mm-hmm. And Yellow Earth came about, it's very interesting, after they graduated, Zhang Chen Cage and another filmmaker named Zhang Zheng Zhao, they were all assigned to this movie studio, the Guanzi studio, but there was no work for them there. So they lobbied the Ministry of Culture to make their own independent projects. This is 82, 83. And from this came the very first for fifth generation films. It's a war film. The first fifth generation film was by that film maker Zhang Zhengzhou, it was called One and Eight. But the first to achieve international recognition, really the first mainland Chinese film since the 30s to get any kind of international exposure, was Chen Cage's Yellow Earth. And that was a movie that, again, was controversial domestically, controversial, you know, with the higher ups, because it was perceived as if you look at it a certain light, it might depict China negatively to the world. Now, Zhang Yimou was, as you said, the cinematographer on Yellow Earth, and there was a producer at another studio who was very impressed, had a certain fund at his studio, the profits from more commercial movies could be used to make more artistic movies. And that led to Zhang Yimou making his directorial debut, Red Sorghum, Mm -hmm. which was also his first film with Gong Li. And that film really rattled the Ministry of Radio, Television, and Film. But it also received international exposure, played the festival circuit. That's the thing about every one of these early films is that the people in charge are like, we don't like this. Like this is, you know, painting China in an offensive light. It looks down on the history of it. And then, you know, Zhang is like, how about I make one more? And it's like, how 
does he keep getting away with this? And from that point on, the you know the Ministry of Radio, Television, and Film wasn't funding a lot of these movies. His next one, Judo. Oh, you skipped Codename Cougar from oh, 1989. Codename Cougar, yes. I, I, I that that one doesn't have a great reputation. Does no, it? and that's like uh, about an aircraft hijacking. That's like a one for me, one for them movie. Well, his next personal one, Judo. That the funding for that one came from a Japanese company, mm. and that was banned in China. And then the next decade of his career was banned in China, basically. But again, they played the festival circuit. And I would imagine that, you know, for the higher ups in China, it was a very complicated thing because this is a period where they're trying to enter the international stage. So everything's fine down here. You can bring all your manufacturing. No problem. Well, like they want to present the image of like a modern country. And part of that is, you know, it's it's great to have these great Chinese filmmakers who are on the f- international stage, but they're projecting an image of a weak nation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Can't you just make propaganda blockbusters? And then they get made and they go out and people are like, well, we don't like these. Oh, how do we win? <laughs> so raise the Red Lantern. We both watched that this week. We did indeed. Great Ga- movie. Gong Li stars in it as a young ex-university student who is sold into uh, a life of being a wife of a man that you never actually see in close up. That's right. You only see him in long shot. He's this nobleman. It's, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, might be in the 1920s it's at this big compound that he lives in with his four wives that's right uh, wife one wife two wife three wife four one is the oldest the youngest is gong Li, and wife one has been abandoned long ago mm-hmm. you know she- and it's all about rituals and the fact that this man is in power by every night he decides which wife he wants to be with and there's a big kerfuffle that happens where red lanterns are lit the uh, wife that is chosen gets a massage on her feet which that massage creates noise which makes the other wives jealous so what comes up from that is all of the wives are vying for the attention of this man and basically destroying themselves to get there yeah destroying each other and mm-hmm. and there's also a maid who works there who desperately wants to be one of the wives and that adds further complications so the gong lee character quickly becomes alienated by this system but is not an uncomplicated hero either i mean she treats no, she's her, selfish she treats her servant abominably mm-hmm. she does things that lead to uh, her servant's death uh, <laughs> i really wish this film had like a mainland chinese forced upon it happy ending <laughs> where they're like what would be the happy ending of this movie and all the wives lived happily ever after with the yeah, I mean, you know, what, what can you say about this movie? It's extraordinary. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's very red. <laughs> very red. <laughs> Hence the title. I mean, and yeah, like you're, you're just you're just stuck in this compound. You never see outside this compound. You know, just... when you think of Zhang Yimou, I think now you think of the post hero very visually kind of like opulent while all these early films they're all in that kind of like what i associate with the mainland chinese drama look cold cement big empty well the perception of zhang yimou as this sellout filmmaker i was trying to think this week about how accurate it actually is because these early ones i mean this movie because it's slow it's deliberate it projects itself as being like an art film you yeah know? it is a melodrama too it is well i think that the reason it got so popular was because of all the scheming between the wives and that there's an inherent drama in that and an escalating sense of action until the end of the movie and i think some of these early movies because in the 80s and 90s 
you know, it was a popular selling point on the festival circuit to say, oh, this is a banned film. This repressive government that we don't like yeah. uh, doesn't want you this to see this. This is the movie the man doesn't want you to see. And uh, Westerners like to think of these filmmakers as being dissidents, you know, but I don't, I genuinely don't think even at this time, Zhang Yimou would have regarded himself as a dissident. I think he was somebody who wanted to make good movies. Movies that have kind of a dramatic backbone and are interesting. And like, sorry, well, like it's more interesting to tell a story about Chinese history or any country's history the that argument has some would be of this. Like, well, there's not that many mainland Chinese films that get out there. And this one is all about how, you know, the patriarchy is terrible. And the and patriarchy is deeply embedded into our country's bones. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost a way that, you know, if you look at it, it could be a metaphor for the Chinese government themselves pitting all the Chinese people against each other. It could be. Yeah. Could so be. you don't have to go that far. But then again, I know Will is making the argument to unban this film, which is not banned right now, <laughs> but that it's just a dramatic story. Well, I just think like, I don't want to fall into the old trap of being. Yeah. Like, he's speaking for an entire nation. Yeah. Or projecting something onto That's him not there. That That's just like Western imperialism. You know, yeah. the story of Ju is almost him trying to be like, all right, I will tell the most undramatic story I possibly can, where any of the big dramatic incidents happen off screen. Right. The film is about a man who was kicked in the nuts by his town chief. We do not see this nut kick. Wasted opportunity. But also setting up the whole movie. Gong Li plays the nut kicked man's wife, and she decides that she wants an apology from the uh, town chief. And the town chief won't give it. He abides to the rules that the government body above him says that she, he needs to pay for any medical expenses. But beyond that, he will not apologize for the kick in the nuts that happened. And so the movie is like 100 minutes of her going from office to office mm -hmm. trying to get justice. Yeah. And she doesn't really understand the legal system to a certain extent of like, why do you get a lawyer to do this? Like, why do I have to sue the ch chief? And I, the notable thing about this is that Zhang shot the movie on the streets of modern day mainland China. And he did it with hidden cameras. So when like Gong Li's walking through the streets, the people are not, you know, kind of aware that they're on camera. Now, was this not a period piece too, though? It is not a period okay. piece. It feels like a period piece, which again, is that Western imperialism coming into this. Right. But like I looked and it's, I think it's supposed to be set modern day because they just shoot it on regular streets. Okay. Okay. So it's been forever since I've seen it. You know, Judo is a movie that when he was making it, he made it a period piece to appease potential censorship basically, because he wanted to, he, he wanted to say to the censors, look, it's not about China today. It's about, it's the 1920s. Like what's the problem? But of course that movie was banned too, because after Red Sorghum, he's perceived as like a problem director mm -hmm. as well the international reputation of these films is both you know it's it's a bless it's a double-edged sword um yeah because if he represents everything then everything is going to put under the microscope for what it could mean and they're not stupid they can tell that you know these movies have certain anti-authoritarian tones mm -hmm. or, or anti-authority tones at least and you know he made to live which is one of his more famous films as well and shanghai triad with gong li but like in the late 90s he actually went like all right okay stop banning my movies like this is enough so i kind of lose touch with them between that gong li period and hero so i watched keep cool from okay. 1997 and this is him being like i can do Wong Kar Wai. Like it's set in the modern day. It's stars 
who was one of Chinese biggest stars. And then he's kind of gone away for a while. Um, Jiang Wen, who was in like, let the bullets fly. He's the one who directed and starred in that movie. Right. And he plays a man that's like obsessed with a woman and a bunch of like complications happen. The entire film is shot handheld, like slightly pointing up, like shamelessly mimicking fallen angels reading about kind of like criticism from around the time. A lot of people like this movie personally. It didn't really do anything for me. I could feel that Shang was trying, trying something different, but I feel like he didn't quite get there in that same kind of like off-the-cuff Wong Kar Wai style. Now with Hero in 2002, this begins this period that, I mean, it seems like a one for them, one for me period where he, I mean, from that point on, he basically becomes China's national filmmaker. Well, I can't speak for him, but you get the sense that like, he does like these movies. Totally. Like Hero is not a movie that he's like, oh, I gotta make this. Like with House of Flying Daggers, I watch it for this podcast because I was interested of like, okay, so Hero is kind of like a deconstruction of the idea of this. Like, it's telling the story, but it's also doing it in a way that is making you very aware of the structure of it. Kind of like a, a meta take on this. While still having all the same action that you would expect from a movie, movie like this, choreographed by the guy who is the wuxia god, uh, Ching Su Tung, director of a Chinese ghost story, who also directed a film, I'm just going to move past it really fast, called A Terracotta Warrior that he did in 1989 that starred Zhang Yimou and and Gong Li, and it's just like a fluffy action film. Hero is the culmination of a long strategy on the part of China's film industry, where, you know, I, I forget what the film office in China mm. is called, but, you know, in the early 90s, they began letting in a certain number, a quota of American blockbusters that would get theaters back up and running and would get people into the habit of going to movies again. It had been years since movie going was a really vital industry. And so stuff like Jurassic Park, stuff like True Lies would start to play and then hero you know after crouching tiger hidden dragon which was i think a taiwanese production or a hong kong production that came out huge hit all over the world not a huge hit in china but it was such a hit all over the world for a number of reasons like that chowering fats mandarin is not that hot that the film itself to the eyes of people who consume this all the time like what's novel about it well it was written by a white guy too yeah uh, and it was directed by someone from taiwan i'm gonna be honest like i like crouching tiger hidden dragon i like it that too. wire work clunky as hell because huh. Ang Lee demanded to shoot it a particular way that Yu Will Ping did not want to shoot you know when they're like running and their feet are just like moving in the air Yu Will Ping would not shoot that stuff like that oh. well I like it I'm not complaining but, but anyway <laughs> I'm complaining I'm, I'm behind the mainland Chinese audience <laughs> well anyway in 2002 Hero is this attempt not just to ride on on the coattails of Crouching Tiger but also to say we can make movies that can compete with these Hollywood blockbusters on their terms it was a 30 million dollar super production with uh, Jet Li, big mainland star, and like uh, Hong Kong stars, <laughs> and a rogues gallery of all the biggest Hong Kong stars: Tony Lung, Maggie Chung, Donnie Yen, Zhang Ziyi, who's mm -hmm. also mainland. What's interesting about this film, watching it now. I need to explain how I would have consumed something like Hero back in the day. Mm -hmm. I probably saw a cam version recorded in China with no subtitles. Really? Yes. So I would have watched it, and I would have watched it just for the fight scenes. Because it's like, this is what I want to see. Did you not see it when it came out in theaters? I don't think I saw it in theaters. I did see it, you know, afterwards with English subtitles. It was a, this was a big event for me in theaters mm. when this came out. I was in heaven seeing this movie in theaters when I was 15. You're like, give me the kiss of the dragon, Jetley's up on screen. I, I, well, at that point, I was definitely like... I knew enough to know that like, oh, this is this one's from China. This is one of the real ones. But what's interesting about watching the film today is like the fights 
are not that exciting because they don't really have a dramatic backbone in the story that is being told. Well, they're beautiful. They're beautiful, but they're not exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Watching them separated, they're exciting because there's a story that you build in your mind and, you know, there's internal storytelling that's done very well. Like, Jet Li is telling a story to the emperor in this film and like, and then the fights are happening. All the conversations, everyone is very stoic in the way that they talk. They're all shot in really close head and shoulders. Mm -hmm. And that once you realize through this movie that like, oh, these stories were being told, like they are not true. They're just fabrications that Jet Li is building to achieve his mission to, spoiler alert, I mean, you'll figure it out 10 minutes into the movie, kill the emperor. Well, if I can tell you how the movie plays differently for me now, I feel like when I was 15, I watched this movie and it felt like an art film. I've never seen anything like this before. And now it plays like a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it actually doesn't seem as exotic as it did back then. Well, the thing with the action in this movie, if even you were a casual Hong Kong cinema fan, which I, I don't know if I would even call myself that at that point, like Ching Su Tung is like, let me open the old bag of tricks. There's nothing new here mm -hmm. that he's doing, but it's presented in a way where it's so pristine and beautiful. Like... Ching Su Tong was having guys jump on their swords to continue fighting in the air as they're falling. Back in his directorial debut, Duel to the Death, here, when you have them like very gently in slow motion, bounce off of the water and fly in the air. It's the same principle, but you've never seen it presented in a way that's screaming at you, this is important, this is beautiful, which it is, I'm not going to deny well, that. And there's also just a lot of cool ideas in the movie, yeah. like, you know, in the early fight between Jet Li and Donnie Yen when he like glides through the air through the through the pe the little pellets of water mm -hmm. or that big set piece where you know all the arrows are are attacking the calligraphy school and and they're all kind of like defending it or standing their ground yeah they get mown down. I, I mean ideas like that are like honestly count for more than the choreography itself mm -hmm. and at the end of the day the film is all about listen i came here to kill the emperor who killed my family but if he's uniting all of these disparate places maybe there's value in that even though the movie makes no effort to actually give you that in any dramatically compelling way. Right. So, you know, ultimately it's a movie about uh, sacrificing the self for the collective mm -hmm. and for the importance of a unified China. And this is also important, too, because as the culmination of a long project and the beginning of a whole new project for the Chinese film industry of being like, we can create blockbusters that will compete and, and in fact overpower their American competitors in our market and they will project our messages. I need to, again, highlight the fact that one of the thing about mainland Chinese films, even Hong Kong versions of those films, they have alternate endings. It's kind of like the Hays Code where like the villain will be punished. You know, everything will have a kind of acceptable moral. That's why you get the ending of Hero. I even remember at the time people being like, that's an odd ending. Mm -hmm. But Yimou had been doing it, you know, his entire career because like Keep Cool, which is all about a guy that wants to cut off another man's arm. That's what the whole back half of the movie is about. At the end, he writes a letter apologizing for all of his misdeeds. Well, I mean, this isn't Yimou, but one of the odder cases I remember was Johnny Toe's Drug War, which is, you know, such a great movie, by the way. And it's a mainland production and it's, you you know, this, I love drug wars. Yeah, I, I love that movie a lot. And then, you know, it's this thriller about uh, the cops trying to, you know, working with this drug dealer to hunt down the bad guys, basically. But because he's a drug dealer, he can't survive at the end. And so after all the action oh. is over, after the whole movie's done, basically, it ends with this very bizarre and unpleasant scene of just him 
like getting a lethal injection and, and you just see him screaming get, dying yes. dying you know no music nope I feel movie jo- over. Johnny Dato knows exactly what he's doing there, as opposed to the more tacked on uh, alternate endings like, hey, if you watch Infernal Affairs in uh, mainland China, don't worry, Andy Lau gets taken into prison at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. So anyway, from this point on, Hero Onwards, he alternates between big Spielbergian martial arts fantasias and smaller Spielbergian dramas. Well, he also gets to kind of uh, follow his muse, I guess, when he remakes uh, Blood Simple in 2009. Right, a simple noodle story, I think it was called. A woman, a gun, and a noodle shop. I mean, I've, I've gone in and out. I mean, he's been very prolific over the last 15 years, and I've seen a good amount of them you know it, it's funny like i saw the one coming home which mm-hmm. was a reunion with gong lee from maybe seven or eight years ago and it's a story of a man who's been sent off to like a labor camp during the cultural revolution and he comes back to finally meet his wife and his my, wife forgets him and she keeps she goes to the train station every week t- waiting for her husband to come back and eventually he comes to peace with the idea that well she'll never recognize me as her husband but i can still live with her and go to the train station with her every week and You know, I bring this up because we just watched one of his newest movies, One Second, which is also set during the Cultural Revolution and seems to me no more incendiary than that. In fact, it seems less incendiary. And yet, you know, One Second was banned. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. And like one of the strange things about uh, the system in China is it seems the rules change a lot. Yes. And we've talked about this many times, I feel like, but like. The censorship uh, mode in China, you have to do it by mail, and it can take weeks or months to receive a reaction. In one second, there are three characters. There's a guy who's escaped from a prison camp in the Cultural Revolution, and he's trying to get this canister of film that has a newsreel that has one second of his estranged daughter in it. Mm-hmm. There's just a shot of her, you know, working working in the yeah, Cultural Revolution. Yeah, it's like a propaganda yeah. movie, and yeah. he just wants to watch that. Yeah, he just wants to see that. And then there's another character, an orphan girl, a young girl, who wants, wants the same can of film so that she can, like, melt it and, you know... You, you get money out of it. Yeah, exactly. Just for the raw materials. And then there's a third guy, Mr. Movie, mm-hmm. who just like... He's a projectionist. Yeah, he, he goes around the country projecting these propaganda films. And it's all about the conflict between those three. Now, there are no... Obviously, no reasons have come out for why that movie was banned for two years. Uh, there were technical difficulties will when it was pulled out of the berlin film that's Festival. right yeah and i mean one thing you can tell just by watching it is it has this tacked on ending that feels like well they shot that later mm-hmm. but while no reasons have been released probably one of them was just the, the it makes it look miserable well the, yeah like there's a lot of poverty in the movie yeah. as there was during the cultural revolution and like the you know chinese officials would rather we don't talk about that i mean it's strange though because that movie coming home from eight years ago I mean, things I, change though. I, yeah, it does because I think that movie makes the, makes it look worse than one second does. Well, the weird thing is, like, you watch Taking of Lake Changji, the you know two part movie, that makes war look absolutely miserable, where everyone dies. Mm-hmm. Like, it does not look good. But they're like, yeah, that's fine. We like that. <laughs> like, yeah. don't worry about that. Well, anyway, one second though, I thought was a terrific movie. I love one second. Yeah. My only criticism, and you may have seen this on Letterbox, it is a love letter to celluloid. Like, I don't think I could think of any other fictional film where celluloid is just like, 
just you know loved clean shown on screen i mean the whole mid section of this movie is the can of film that's in question it falls out it gets dispersed it gets all dirty and the whole community who wants to see the movie come together to help clean the film yes now that's good calming to start by the way it is uh the issue is one second is shot on digital yeah. And boy, does it look like digital. I know, I and know. I, if you know, if Jean can't do it, no one can. <laughs> like, well, I will just say, I think most of the Chinese blockbusters I've seen in the last five Ooh. years look awful. Yeah, I think One Second looks pretty good. Yeah, I think he does what he can with the technology. Like he's Zhang Yimou is a forceful image maker. He's very good with you know big vistas of the Gobi Desert. If someone could let me know what cameras you know, Chinese production shoot, I would love to know. Like, I was looking into it. They had, like, a bootleg red they had made for themselves. But, like, what actual technology do they shoot on? Sony cameras? I don't know. Because that also really affects the way that images can look. Because, like, when we think of mainland Chinese blockbusters, we think of, like, very oversaturated and sharp. Sharp to the point of being almost dead. Yeah, exactly. Just a lifeless image. Mm. Um, which is strange. Cause It's sad because I feel like 10 years ago, Chinese movies they would come out and you'd be like, oh, they're so beautiful. You well, know? I mean, China for the longest time, they had like the last Technicolor lab. Wow. Which is what Judong is printed on in like 1990. I mean, all the all the Wong Kar Wai movies, the Zhang Yimou movies, like House of Flying Daggers looked mm-hmm. so fucking good. And mm-hmm. now, now they look awful. God. Yeah. But one second though, good movie. Would recommend. It felt like it kind of like slipped through the crack. Did it come out when like the pandemic was happening? I think it must have. Yeah. But I, I think it's just a, yeah, a really beautiful movie. Just great characters. The love letter to cinema aspect of it Mm. I think is very powerful but it's also a very bittersweet movie oh yeah absolutely Mm. like those final moments very bittersweet and you know it was it was nice watching it just knowing because I've obviously run hot and cold on Zhang Yimou some of his recent movies like he made The Great Wall with Matt Damon (laughs) I heard Matt Damon on Mark Maron's podcast talking about making that movie and obviously knowing that it was terrible and he said he knew it was doomed when halfway through it he asked he made a suggestion and Zhang said oh that's good but this is this movie's for your audience yes it's and, like uh, uh, Zhang was like yeah uh, I'm gonna phone this one in thank you very yeah, much yeah and and Matt Damon as he said realized no wait I want to be in one of the good ones you <laughs> know well, too bad yeah. you can't be Christian Bale in the flowers of war another forgotten film I mean the flowers of war which I've also seen oh. is the pits yeah I mean just Ooh. terrible I stared at it and I went do I? And I went, no, life is too short. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I saw it. I guess I, you Well, know, you were probably like, oh, this is a big, important film that's I, coming I think out. I, you know why I saw it? It was because it's like, oh, the new Zhang Yimou movie. Exactly. Out. But we both went to go see Full River Red, the new uh, Zhang Yimou movie. And this one is mega popular in China. I think it's in like the top five of all time of mainland China right now. And I thought it was quite fun. It's super. It's just him having a ball with... The premise is at the end, you'll hear this very famous Chinese poem. It's like, okay, he uses that kind of like backbone to just make a one long night like French farce where like no one is who they're presenting as who they are. There's a mystery that needs to be solved. Bodies keep piling up and people are running from one location to one location in this giant, you know, big fortress. Super fun, long, but very fun. And you feel that he's very present in the film in a way that like, you know, the Great Wall... He's like, oh boy, okay, let's just get this over with. So yeah, I mean, there have definitely been times when I've lost a little faith in him over the years. There have been times when he's disappointed me, but one second in this movie, uh, Full River Red, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's just good to know he's still there, that he's still doing stuff. I wonder if after like Full River Red, is this one 
for them or for him? Like, will his next one, could he make like a small drama or something like that? Especially that it's been such a huge success. Or will the people in charge be like, how about you make us, uh, you know, an anniversary film about the war? I mean, he already did. We skipped over one, Snipers, that he did with his daughter. Right, which, oh, I, I want to see that. It's still. fun. Yeah. It's very fun. And we even like skipped a bunch of them. Like Cliff Walker, I think is really good. That's like the spy film that he made um, that actually has a Japanese action choreographer that worked on it. <laughs> Super violent, of course, at the end, even though the message is completely against what we've seen for the last two hours, there's a on-screen text being like, this is the one for the revolutionaries out there. <laughs> it's like, oh boy, and Shadow. So he's still at it. I feel that he's in more of a groove right now after the Great Wall. Like, I like Shadow. I like One Second. I like Cliff Walker. I like Snipers. I like Full River Red. Like, he's really in his groove now. Just, I really hope that the government doesn't make him forced to do like, oh, we need another Hollywood hit now. Like, go make one of those. It's <laughs> like, he's done enough, guys. He's done enough. Well, before we get to letters this week, I do want to say that we are celebrating another great Chinese filmmaker, Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. at an upcoming event. That's if, right. If you are in Toronto on April 18th at the Fox Cinema. In great Tr- cinema in Toronto. Yeah, in Toronto, in the Beaches neighborhood. We are inaugurating our new series, Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classics. Mm-hmm. And for our first movie, what else could we choose but Rumble in the Bronx? This is a film because we wanted to go with a Jackie Chan one. And we thought about it. We're like, do we do Drunken Master? Do we do Police Story? And we finally came to the conclusion of like, let's get one that like never plays in theaters. But that everybody likes. Exactly. And we can give it like the context around it. There'll be a pre-show. There'll be tons of stuff. I'll be selling Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays. It'll be Woodstock, That's guys. right. And if enough people come, will we be doing this monthly, Will? Perhaps. Perhaps. Who knows? Yeah. So if you are within a thousand mile radius of Toronto. If you can, if you have access to an airplane that lands in Toronto. (laughs) Yes. We expect you to be there. So once again, April 18th, 7 p.m., go to foxtheater.ca to get your ticket. Yeah, get them now before it's sold out. No fear, no stuntman, no equal. (laughs) Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Christopher, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, there's a name I've been hesitant to suggest for an episode, but after the recent run of serious filmmakers on the ICC, and after Mark Hansen mentioned him on the latest Bay Street Video podcast, I feel the time is right for me to finally say it. Zalman King. (laughs) First, he's Canadian. That's Oterp points right there. Second, I've heard his films described as atmospheric and dreamlike, just like a pitchapong wirasakul. Oh, I almost got got there. Wirasathakul. There you go. Lastly, he's due for reappraisal, since he was always thought of as a forgettable softcore hack, but now people are quick to point out he told stories from a female point of view. (laughs) Uh, And he was an artist that was, as David Duchovny said, more concerned with the color of the drapes than showing any TNA. Well, I'll tell you, when I was 13 years old, sneaking down to the TV and watching Red Shoe Diaries on mute, um, I was not concerned about the drapes. <laughs> At least not those drapes. Well, yeah, <laughs> you were concerned by another. Aye, aye, aye. Anyway, I do want to correct the letter writer, though. A Canadian filmmaker, he was born, the, the ICC fact-checking department has been on this. He was born in Trenton, New Jersey. And he died in California. So, I mean, perhaps, um, maybe he, I wouldn't be shocked to be shot in Toronto, though. Yeah, we need to talk about about like Canadian filmmakers like Bob Clark. Oh wait, you know, I'm getting a telegram here. What? He wasn't Canadian either. Oh my god. Well, anyway, I actually Who do we have? I actually love the suggestion of Zalman King. I've never seen anything Zalman King has ever made. I mean, again, aside from watching Red Shoe Diaries on mute as a teenager, <laughs> for uh, 
two to six minutes. Okay, and something that the listeners need to understand back then is- City TV. I didn't have a laptop when I was 13. I didn't have a phone. You didn't have a phone in your hand? We, like, it was not- the sound down? It was not the easiest thing in the world to see naked people. if you were in Ontario, City TV did show this stuff Baby Blue, Baby Blue movies, and also uh, Showcase. Blue Nuit. Yeah, Showcase was the Zalman King channel. Now, I have never actually seen any of Zalman King's, like, I've not seen Wild Orchid or Two Moon Junction or whatever else he did. I would kind of like to, honestly. I think it's a good suggestion. Like, maybe he's good. I don't know. The letter continues. Also, please do it so I can tell my mother that when she caught me watching The Red Shoe Diaries at the age of 14, <laughs> I was actually studying a great, unappreciated filmmaker and not securing my ah, place in hell. My brother. <laughs> P.S. Next Marathon, the entire Emmanuel series. Well, how that is a tall order? Okay, how entire are we talking about here? Are we only talking about the Sylvia Christel ones, or are we going to go into Emmanuel in space? Don't forget Black Emmanuel. That's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's too much. That's like saying the entire Django series. Yeah, <laughs> it's like every film that has Django in it. Well, thank you very much for that great suggestion. And our next letter is from Ali, and they go, "Hello, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I love movies, and first fell in love with international cinema with Blue in 1993, which I still remember picking up on my local blockbuster." video rest in peace no blockbuster stinks yeah. die yeah but you know it did have an important place in a lot of people's uh, you know young discovering movies heart and hey blue is that the derek jarman or the Christoph kieslowski that second one that you just said okay. i like how you put a little like you know spice on that I, I, I did this because i thought i was gonna mispronounce it <laughs> and i was hoping i could distract people the letter continues during covid i decided to dive back into that passion and made a list of about 304 foreign films to marathon through which i actually made to do and even briefly suffered under the delusion i might have become fluent in french japanese and german i did not did you ever think that like oh if i watch a lot of hong kong movies i'll come out i'll understand cantonese right uh no i never thought that (laughs) i remember reading like the kung fu cult cinema forum and the reviewer being like how do i not know any cantonese at this point like (laughs) considering all the movies that i watch the only way to learn is to turn off the subtitles and try to pick up things from context clues anyway much of the access i've had to film education has been been through Criterion. And while I love that canon of cinema, your podcast covers so many aspects of film history I know virtually nothing about. Yeah, Criterion should give us a call. I agree. We could uh, fill in those gaps. Through your podcast, I discovered the Kino Cult app, which has been really fun. The venereal disease scene in Mom and Dad, which I watch (laughs) after hearing it mentioned on your show, really served up the moments I will never soon forget. Overboiling a hot dog is now something I fear in a whole new way. So thank you, kind of. That's so fucked that this podcast (laughs) introduced them to Mom and Dad. Led somebody to watching the 1948 exploitation movie, Mom and Dad. Which, if you want more information about that, check it out on our Patreon episode. I have a long way to catch up on all the episodes, so hopefully I'm not repeating something that you've covered already, but I was wondering if you'd ever delved into the cinema of Wang Wang. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, I was wondering if a Lone Wolf and Cup marathon might be in your future. I love Wang Wang. He's a good man. Wang Wang is fantastic. For those who don't know, Wang Wang, whose real name was Ernesto de la Cruz, was a two foot nine inch Filipino actor. He is best known for a movie called For Your Height Only, which was a James Bond parody in which he played the James Bond character. Uh, But he was also just a well-known novelty media figure in the Philippines at the time. There's a very fun documentary on him that was made. And also, if you want For Your Height Only... I don't know how accessible it is, but Mondo Macabro put out on a DVD, arguably the greatest DVD of all time, because not only do you get For Your Height Only, you also get Challenge of the Tiger, 
which has our guys, Bruce Lee and Richard Harrison, kicking up a storm. I love Challenge of the Tiger, too. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, that documentary, The Search for Wang Wang, which is by a filmmaker named Andrew Leivold, it's a great documentary because it's not just about Wang Wang, but it's also about all of uh, the Philippines exploitation movies of the time. Like he goes to the Philippines and he meets with all these like old stuntmen who worked there at the time. And also he meets with Imelda Marcos, the widow of uh, the oppressive president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos. And he asks her about knowing Wang Wang. Wow. And I mean, when I think of her, I think of that amazing story in the intro of Mondo Macabro, the book, where they were building the film center and it collapsed and they said, okay, just cement over it and any body parts that are sticking out of it, cut them off and then cement over that. And that went fine until it opened and it started to stink. (laughs) Well, I saw Andrew Leavold do a Q and a after a screening of the search for Wang Wang. And he said that when he showed the movie in the Philippines, he was a little worried about the stuff with Imelda Marcos because he thought, the audience might, they might be like, why are you interviewing this oppressor, this this awful person? But apparently, when he said, what do you remember about Wang Wang? They all cheered because it was like, they almost saw it as a defiant gesture. Like, it's like you go up to the queen and ask about her toilet, that kind of thing. You uh, know? I don't want to uh, speak too much of Filipino politics. I would not look into who is currently in power because it may be a child of that family. <laughs> oh, is, is that so? Well, yeah. anyway, I'm just, I'm just report. Sorry. I thought you were going to be like, yeah, they love her. Woo! I'm all worn out from learning about the fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers. Mm. I haven't had time to look into the Philippines. <laughs> you know what? But we I love Wang a, Wang. We should do a Filipino filmmaker, though, because I don't think we've ever touched that country. Oh, God. Lav Diaz is sitting right there. Add it to the list. So uh, the letter finishes up with, you've given me hours of listening enjoyment. Love hearing about new stuff. Love that you approach things in such an accessible way. And spending time listening to two giant film nerds. Nerds? No one's ever called us that before. Has really toned down my need to force my siblings and friends to hear me obsess about it. So I'm sure they're grateful too all the best can't wait to hear all the episodes well thank you but we are the two coolest people in toronto so (laughs) oh man we haven't called ourselves the blue collar guys uh film podcast for a long time but that's who we are right that's right you know we get off for nine to five and it's time to record this podcast just two joe lunchpail checking in watching race (laughs) the red lantern and then checking out and going home (laughs) yeah so uh thank you very much for that letter as per usual you can send us letters at important center club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing on our patreon this week Will? Well, speaking of Jackie Chan, and again, uh, Rumble in the Bronx, screening April 18th at the Fox Cinema in Mm -hmm. Toronto. We're going to be saying that every week until then, guys, so buckle up. uh, We are talking about Jackie Chan's classic romantic comedy, Gorgeous, from Mm -hmm. 1999, released on a brand new Blu-ray. Now, if you were in a video store in the early 2000s, you probably rented this movie and thought, this is weird. It's a romantic Romantic comedy. comedy. And if you think, man... You know, the boys, they must have ran out of stuff to see uh, say about Jackie Chan. Eh, wrong. We go 25 plus minutes on it. I wish we just made this a Jackie Chan podcast. <laughs> because I, every single one of his movies, I think we could do 30 minutes on. Well, here's the thing. By the end, we'll be talking about the tuxedo for the third time. And we will <laughs> pass off this mortal coil. So I, we haven't run out of Jackie stuff to talk about. We'll keep doing Far it. Far from it. I'm shocked we've never done like the tuxedo or the spy next door. We never we we've done the we I watched that movie with you at one point. Did we? Yeah, Did we, we watched an episode it together. I don't even. We remember. might have watched it as part of our Jackie episode. I don't think I've ever seen the Spy Next Door though. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, I know you probably saw it theatrically, right? I saw it at a press screening. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure it played to raucous laughter. Oh my god! 
So, uh, yeah, we're talking gorgeous on the Patreon episode. $5 a month, you get that, and our entire back catalog. So check it out, including, I gotta say, five-plus Jackie-themed episodes, right? Where he picked us a movie that we wanted to talk about that he made, and we just talked about that. Years and years of content. And next week, what are we doing, Will? We are talking about Isaac Florentine. Mm -hmm. He is the direct-to-video king. Yes, action king. And Isaac Florentine, I think is one of my favorite director video action filmmakers. And you may be asking, why did you talk about him till now yet? And it's a big subject to tackle, I feel. He's made a lot of movies. And the thing about Isaac Florentine is, it's one of those recommendations where you go, oh, you'll really like this. But, you know, there may be some stuff that's a little weaker in it. You know, just, just understand. But he's done everything. He did post-apocalyptic spaghetti westerns with Gary Daniels, with Cold Harvest. His masterpiece, U.S. Seals 2, which is choreographed by Jackie Chan's stuntman. That's right. Jackie Chan had a stuntman. No, that's not true. No. He also did probably his most famous series is Undisputed 2 and 3, the films that really made Scott Atkins. I mean, Isaac Florentine made Scott Atkins. He's the one who Scott Atkins had appeared in a bunch of hong kong movies in supporting roles but he's the one with a movie called special forces that finally gave him like a big meaty role and has just been doing it since then the other thing about isaac florentine he's the man who cannot catch a break when it comes to like moving to the next level he has been stuck in the millennium mines forever millennium being a production company and he can't get out. To Truly the, the Edgar G. Almer of our age. To the point that, like, my friend, who perhaps is a programmer, has been at festivals and gone, hey, can I see the new Isaac Florentine film? And they go, you wouldn't be interested in that. Wow. Yeah, so, like... Even after all the acclaim he's gotten. After Undisputed 3, like, played a whole bunch of festivals and won awards, he should have been made to, like, move to the next level. What was he He done? should be directing Fast and Furious now. Yeah, or The Expendables. Yeah. Do you know what he was forced to do after those movies? To make a vanity project for, like, the girlfriend of one of the heads of the company that he was making the movie for. Uh. But, you know, he's got tons of movies. He's been working since the early 90s, and he's still at it. Love the guy. So we'll probably be watching, uh, I would say, U.S. Seals 2. And I'll pick some other ones for Will to watch because I want to get all the flavor. He made a Dolph Lundgren kind of like Wuxia style movie called Bridge of the Dragon. Yeah. And for my part, Isaac Florentine is somebody who I've heard about for years, have always wanted to dive into. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I've just been intimidated by mm -hmm. it because there's so much stuff and I don't know what's good. So exactly. let's uh, let's do it. I mean, Undisputed uh, 3 has two uh, John Wick 4 uh, actors in it. Mark Zoror, who plays like the main guy that Keanu Reeves fights and Scott Atkins. So. Scott Atkins is kind of Florentine's Bobby De Niro. Yeah. Yeah, it, absolutely. And they still work together to this day, so they clearly have a close uh, relationship. All right, I'm excited. It's going to be so fun. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, I saw John Wick 4 this week. I know you saw it too. Something that... First day. Yeah. First show they had. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> Of course you are. Something that impressed me was Donnie Yen. I mean, obviously Donnie Yen's great, mm -hmm. but it's so different than it used to be. Like, it used to be that Chow Yun-Fat would come and make a movie in America, and he would basically just be there to be the straight man to Sean William Scott. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, you know, Jackie Chan would come to make a movie in America, and it'd be like, Jackie you know, you got to tone down the fight scenes for Western audiences. We can only have like a three minute fight oh, scene. That commentary on the medallion DVD, that's the two producers. And they're like, Oh, this scene ran so much longer, but we're like, Jackie, you got to cut this down. You can't, it's like, what are you doing? So much has happened since then. I mean, first of all, so many like police story is on the criterion channel. Well, uh, you know, Donnie, he did all that stuff, right? 
his like first technically English language feature film role was in Highlander Endgame, the fourth Highlander movie. And I mean, he'd been he'd been making movies since the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing he's bigger than ever now because he's like probably 60. Yeah. Well, the thing about and in constant pay, <laughs> uh, the thing about Donnie is that like he was a guy that basically was able to move forward because like people like you will ping just believed in him mm-hmm. because like the first few films didn't do that well. And you will ping kept bringing him back putting him in movies and what really made Donnie were the Ip Man films. Right. And like those were so massive that he's basically been kind of like accepted by the Chinese Communist Party as like, you know, a representative. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you haven't seen all those photos of him like smiling in front of like all the government officials? I mean, I knew that he was like friendly with Mm. with, uh, the mainland authorities for sure. His newer movies that are made like out of China and places like, they're fine. (laughs) Like, I don't know if you saw... Big Brother, the one where he's a teacher. No, I and didn't. And he fights. We saw Enter the Fat Dragon together. I saw Enter the Fat Dragon, yes. But that was more of a Hong Kong, Wong Jing kind of like, you know, quickie project. But anyway, in John Wick 4, I think he's excellent. And what's, what's so good. And what's great is what's so different than it was 20 years ago is A, the movie has a baseline assumption. You know Donnie Yen. You love Donnie Yen. You've seen the Ant-Man movies on Netflix, and you're going to want to see him actually do his stuff and fight and also be cool, Be have some actory stuff that he can do. Well, this is the thing about John Wick 4 that I find so fascinating is like what Donnie Yen is now in kind of like the popular imagination, I get the sense, is the Ip Man character. Very stoic and serious. And that's how he's kind of portrayed in all of the subsequent films that he made. That's not who Donnie Yen was earlier. Like he was arrogant. He was kind of like, you know, he thought he was awesome. He was always kind of twitchy and angry. And weirdly, that's the Donnie Yen we got in Triple X3, The Return of Xander Cage, and the one that we get in John Wick 4 as well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's like the director, like know what Donnie can do. I think the- I think clearly does. I yeah. mean, the director, I don't know a lot about him except that he's obviously a cinephile. Well, well, yeah, he's been a stuntman since the early 90s. So. I mean, I know I know he's also said, I mean, in addition to just all the references to martial arts movies, the fact that he has Scott Adkins in the movie mm-hmm. speaks to his expertise in that. But also, I mean, I know he's spoken of the influence of Buster Keaton on the movies. Yeah. I also think like the staircase scene is obviously Laurel, <sighs> Laurel and Hardy, the music box. The like, music box? Don't you mean the Three Stooges and the Ice? Did and, they create it, Will? An ache in every steak? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they perfected it. They perfected it. Okay, I was, I was showing an ache in every steak to someone in recently and, yes and like i could take a guess who that is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the moment when the guy comes out of the car and yeah. says and says ah i brought this big cake never fails to kill oh did it, it even killed him yeah. him or they we don't know who yeah it, oh oh yeah yeah so fun uh that is such a great short and I think what's interesting about these John Wick movies is that like by four, they're almost like exercises. Like what are the action stuff we always wanted to do? And like audience, I don't want to say be damned, but like I was telling someone, okay, there's technically only three action scenes in John Wick. If you, the first one, the fourth one, if you say, this is when action starts, this is when the action ends and the story continues. There's only three action scenes. There's in the Tokyo motel. There's in Scott Atkins bar and there's the climax. But within those scenes, there's five separate set pieces with completely different ideas. So I was going to say, you know, just a friendly criticism of the movie. Mm-hmm. Be- and I feel bad saying this because you're looking at this movie that has so much skill and so much, you mm-hmm. know, like like it's incredible some of the stuff that's in this movie. The opening, like, Tokyo stuff, I thought was the weakest. Really? Yes, because huh. obviously... Ob- 
obviously it's virtuosic, yeah. but there got to be a point there. It's so long and it's, there's a bit of a sameness to a lot of it where it's just like a bunch of guys come out, John Wick mercs them all. Yeah. And it felt very video game. I me. felt like that in John Wick too, where I was like, ah, he just moaned down. But like, just, I felt John Wick kept changing it up. Like there were different things that he had to do the entire time. Well, I mean, I thought the movie, I like the stuff at Scott Atkins bar, but I really got on the movie side in Paris. When there's like the, the fight where they're like uh, at the, are they at the, the Arc, Arc de, Arc de Triomphe? Yeah. yeah. With, with all that stuff. I mean, it's pretty impressive. And the staircase scene, I think it's just a great idea. I think that staircase scene and even the way that it's executed action like classic i think that people will be like we need something like that staircase scene in the same way people would talk about the raid in the context of the action that they do yeah so for me that movie i started a little a little iffy on it Mm -hmm. and then it kept getting better for me as it went along i mean i think a lot has to do with donnie yen too oh every time he shows up on screen we're like we just want a movie about donnie yen well actually the other thing i like about it is that all of the actors in the movie like hiroyuki sonata Mm -hmm. and scott adkins uh everyone like gets to pop everyone gets to do something i think keanu reeves is a very generous leading man Mm -hmm. he's very confident haven't you seen him carrying those bags up the stairs yeah (laughs) there was something oh that's right that's what triggered the mike myers don't look him in the eye thing with that video of keanu reeves like helping on set (laughs) where people were like is it that big a deal that the actor uh, helps on set? I mean, number one, yes, because you're technically breaking union rules. Oh, interesting. Is you, yeah, yeah, But I yeah. think because they're in France, that probably doesn't apply, Okay, which is where they shot that, and he was just being helpful in that way. But there's that story of Kevin Smith being on the set of Mallrats being like, do I need to help you guys bring stuff out? And they're like, no, you're the director. What are you talking about? <laughs> he just didn't know any better. And but, he still hasn't learned how to direct. <laughs> no, well, that's not the lesson <laughs> about that. But uh, So Donnie Yen, really fun in this movie. I hope he uh, is pushed more in that direction. Like, I don't need him to make American films, though. No. But at the same time, in China, it seems like they want him to do a specific thing. Like, I saw the new movie he directed, The Wuxia, and he's so boring and, like, stoic in the films. Like, let Donnie have fun. Mm -hmm. Like, let him be a wild man and say stuff like, fuck you, to someone who's trying to interrupt him. Completely agree. 